Hopefully you have noticed the bulletin article which uh, is on the theme of, of visitation, Bible visitation and what is involved in, in Bible visitation. That article was written in anticipation of, of the uh, event about which uh, Tom spoke in his uh, announcements. Incidentally, speaking of announcements, we did just learn, a note was handed, that Becky Hickerson is, is uh, in the neuroscience unit at Erlanger now. She's no longer in 3101, but at Erlanger, fourth floor, uh, the neuroscience unit. Let's continue to remember Becky uh, in our prayers. Visitation. We've been uh, looking at a theme of the New Testament Christian based on the lectures that were presented at the Memphis School of Preaching Lectureship, but this was not one of those uh, topics. But nonetheless, I decided that uh, it would be good to uh, more or less plug it into our theme because it is a true statement that the New Testament Christian visits. That is up there, isn't it? No, it isn't. Okay, fine. <laughs> But uh, the New Testament Christian uh, visits. Oh, I know why it's not, I guess. That'll work. Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah. Human error. <laughs> the New Testament Christian visits. I think it does fit well into our, into our theme of the New Testament Christian. And I believe that that is a, uh, uh, a basic uh, uh, assertion that um, can be proven from Scripture that every New Testament Christian visits. But we need to understand uh, what that means. Someone may say, well, I, I, I'm not physically able to visit. But that would reflect perhaps the definition that you would find about visiting in the dictionary. Because uh, if you look at a definition in the, in the dictionary of visit, it would, it would indicate making a social call or calling on someone, making a visit. And that is a part of the biblical definition, but that's the point. It is only a part of the biblical definition. So we want to know how we define definition from, uh, or visitation rather, from Scripture. The Greek word most often translated visit in the New Testament means to carefully look upon or to inspect, to carefully look upon or to inspect. It occurs 11 times in the Bible, five of which refer to God's visitation of men, and six refer to men's visitation of other men. And that basically is the outline of our study this morning. We're going to look at, at God's visitation of men and examples of that, and then look at men's visit, visitation of other men. But this is the basic the basic definition. There is one use of the word in Acts 6.3, which is a little bit uh, different. That passage reads, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. That phrase, seek out, is that word visit in the New Testament, that it's translated here, seek out. And so the idea, they're a little different meaning, but visit them. In other words, call on them, uh, get them to participate uh, in this work. So 11 times we find this word visit. But first of all, we look at God's visitation of man. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Luke chapter 1. This is a great text, Zacharias's prophecy, concerning the visitation that God would make to 
man. In reference to uh, the birth of John the baptizer who would be the forerunner of the Christ. In Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse uh, 68, we have uh, Zacharias, verse 67 says, Now his father, that's John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited, there it is, and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. This is John now. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, there's our word again, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What a prophecy this is as it reminds us of God's visitation of man. And in this prophecy, Zechariah is, is prophesying that John would be one who would prepare the way, who would go before the face of the Lord himself to prepare his ways. And to give what? Knowledge of salvation to his people. How? Through remission, absolute remission of sins, through the tender mercy of our God. And notice verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness. And we have to be reminded of the fact that this world was in darkness before the light came to this world through the visitation that God provided through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. But now look at Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 11, here we have Jesus the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Just think about the tragedy here and the deep loss that she was feeling. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, notice this, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Reminds us of the compassion of the Christ. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God. And here we have the purpose of the miracles that Jesus performed. We're reminded again that they were for the purpose of confirming the deity of Christ. And the result was that people who saw them, who were thinking as they should, glorified God. And what did they say? A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. God has visited his people. The greatest visitation of all was the visitation that God provided through Jesus Christ, his son. But then if you look at Acts chapter 15, we have another instance where the visitation of God to man is seen. And this concerns the household of Cornelius and the conversion that took place there of those first Gentile 
uh, converts. In verse 7, beginning, And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Incidentally, remember that they should what? Hear the word of the gospel and believe? Oh yes, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They spoke in tongues. But what was it that they heard and believed that is characterized as obeying the gospel? Not a better felt and told experience from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell upon them, not to convert them, but to demonstrate to those Jewish Christians, remember, who were there at the household of Cornelius, that now the Gentiles were to be brought in. But those at Cornelius' household, just like all of us, since the gospel was initiated, have had to hear the word, the word of the gospel, and believe it, that is, in the obedient sense. So God, verse 8, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. You see, there's the demonstration of the Holy Spirit to confirm that they were to be recipients of the gospel and made no distinction between us and them. But notice this, purifying their hearts by faith. What kind of faith? Well, all we have to do is read Acts 10 and see the conversion of Cornelius in his household. We know what kind of faith it was. It was the kind of faith that involved baptism, which was commanded, and they had to believe and obey, including baptism, in order to be purified in heart by faith. But verse 10, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He's talking about the Old Testament law. But here's verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And drop down now to verse 14 and see something in connection with that grace that has been brought to us. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take, them, take out of them a people for his name. How did God visit the Gentiles? By taking them the gospel through Peter. That was God's visitation. God didn't go see them. God visited them in the sense that Peter preached the gospel to them. Thus we see another example of God's visitation of man. But there's one final passage that I think is particularly significant as it relates to this part of our lesson about God's visitation of man, and that's Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 6. In Hebrews 2 verse 6, there's a quotation here from Psalm 8. The Hebrews writer says, But one testified in a certain place, he's talking about Psalm 8, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man, now listen to this, that you, this is the New King James, that you take care of him. The son of man that you take care of him. If you have the King James, it reads, The son of man that you visit him. Basically, the New King James gives you, gives you the meaning of visit here because it says, what is man that you take care of him? What is man that you visit him? To visit man is to take care of him. And God has visited man in the sense of taking care of man in the greatest sense that man could possibly be cared for. Loved to the greatest degree that man could be loved and visited by God through the giving of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, what a visitation God has made toward man. But what about man's visitation of man? 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. This is a crucial text when it comes to a discussion of what man's visitation of man involves. In Matthew chapter 25, and I'm sure you're familiar with this text, Jesus projects himself forward, if you will, when time is no more, to the judgment scene. And listen to what he says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. Now look at, listen, here's your basis here. At least in part, the basis for the approval or the disapproval at the judgment is being given in this particular section here in a way that is very significant in light of what we're talking about here this morning. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? As if to ask, Lord, we never saw you personally in that situation, and as if to say, you know, if we had, we would have ministered to you. But his response is, then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And then verse 46, very sobering indeed. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In this important text, as it relates to our discussion of visitation, was Jesus saying that visitation is the sole basis of, of your judgment and mine? That we are going to be completely judged on whether or not we have... Uh, been involved in visitation? Oh, certainly not. But there is an emphasis given here that cannot be and must not be overlooked. An importance that Jesus gives to visiting the way the Bible defines visiting. And Jesus gives us a beautiful demonstration of that definition here. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was in prison, you visited me. A stranger, you took me in, etc. All of these illustrations of visitation must never be overlooked. You see, in this passage, the Lord places a premium on practical goodness. And the Lord approves of those who see the needs 
and who actively respond to meet them. Well, does this include those who've never obeyed the gospel who are involved in this kind of thing? Well, of course not. Obviously, the Lord is addressing those who are his followers, those who've obeyed the gospel of Christ. And having obeyed the gospel of Christ, visitation is an imperative with them. Visitation is an imperative. And that's what this passage emphasizes. It is not the sole basis of our salvation. Certainly not. But it's an integral part of it. Does that mean that without any discrimination at all that I should answer every need that is ever presented to me without any investigation, without any questioning? No, we've talked about this before. And we know that we live in a time when there are those who simply make it their job, if you will, their vocation to take advantage of other people and to defraud. We know that. And we have to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, as needs are presented to us, especially from those outside the body uh, of Christ. We have to be discriminating. We have to be good stewards of what God has given us. And the church must be a good steward of the funds that have been given on the first day of the week by her members. We understand and appreciate that. But all things being equal, as it were, we need to appreciate that visitation is something in which the church is to be involved. Visitation, practical goodness, seeing needs, and what? Actively responding. Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7 provides us another example of man's visitation of man as Stephen cited the situation with Moses. In that sermon, in that portion of it recorded in Acts 7, 23 through 25, he speaks about Moses who says, Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to, here it is, visit his brethren, the children of Israel, to see about them, in other words, to care for them, to find out their needs. Seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But of course, as Stephen points out, they did not understand. They did not understand. But that was man's visitation of man in that Moses was concerned about his brethren, his brother Israelites. And he wanted to ascertain their needs and do anything he could to relieve them. In Acts chapter 15, verse 36, at the conclusion of the first missionary journey, you remember that Paul and Barnabas determined to revisit those whom they had converted on the first missionary journey. But you also uh, remember that uh, there was a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas on this occasion concerning John Mark, who on the first missionary journey had turned back from them at a certain point. And uh, Paul did not want to take John Mark again with them on the second journey. Barnabas did. That was his nephew. He wanted to take him. And so they, uh, they actually uh, divided. Uh, they divided and uh, went to uh, uh, two separate ways. But in Acts 15.36, when they went on this journey... We see the results of it. In Acts chapter 16, 
uh, in Acts chapter 16, they went through the cities. Oh, look at verse 41 of Acts 15, first of all. In Acts 15, 41, he went through Syria and Cilicia. This is Paul who took with him Silas. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches, visiting the churches, yes, physically visiting, but the visitation involved exhortation and strengthening. Now drop down to Acts 16 and verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Increased in number daily. Their visitation resulted in multiplication, if you will. They went to care for their needs, to see about their needs, to see how they were doing spiritually, and they strengthened the churches, and the churches grew as a part of, as a result of their biblical visitation. And look at James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, a passage that is quite familiar to us, James gives us inspiration's definition of pure and undefiled religion. Here's the only place in Scripture you find a definition of pure religion, undefiled religion. What is it, James? Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Is James saying we need to go see all the widows and go see all the orphans? Well, I mean, that might be a part of a part of visitation, but no, that's not what he's saying. He's using the biblical definition of visit to care for them, to ascertain their needs, and to meet those needs. That's what visitation involves. Very crucial text is found in 1 John 3, 17 and 18, where John writes, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in him? And then the admonition is this, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now that's, that's an elliptical expression in the latter part. There, something is left out that has to be understood. And what's left out that has to be understood there is only. James is saying, let us not love in word or in tongue only. Because we are to love in word. We are to love in tongue. We are to express our love. There's nothing wrong at all with expressing our love. In fact, there's everything that is right and proper and good about expressing our love for one another. But he's saying that's not it alone, but also in deed and in truth. Not just what we say, but what we do is vitally important. And James reinforces this in James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, where he says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Are you impressed yet with the number of passages that can be cited about biblical visitation? How much the Bible has to say about visitation? The absolute importance of, of visitation? The crucial nature of God's visitation to man? Without that visitation toward man, 
We'd be hopeless. God has visited man. But as a result of that visitation, God has placed upon all of His people, all of the followers of Christ, not really the obligation, though yes, it's an obligation, but the privilege, the privilege and honor of extending that visitation that He has extended so lovingly and mercifully toward us to extend that to others. It's well summarized in a passage that we find more than once in Scripture. In Mark's account, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so we ask, are you visiting wayward brothers and sisters? Are you visiting the sick and afflicted with what aid is needed by them? Are you comforting those in sorrow? Are you doing what you can for those in need? You see, this is Bible visitation. And this is what we must not forget. We must all practice it. All of us. All of us must practice it whether we do it as a part of an organized program or not. The program that we're introducing next uh, Sunday night after services that we're going to talk about that will be initiated, Lord willing, soon, is a program you do not have to be involved in in order to carry out the God-given privilege, let alone command, but the God-given privilege of, of visiting. You can do that whether you're a part of an organized program or not, you must do that. And by that, by doing that, we do not mean that the Lord expects you to be able to do something physically that you're not physically able to do. But there are all sorts of ways to visit. There are all sorts of ways to, to meet needs. I don't necessarily have to personally be able to go to someone to meet a need. We have all sorts of communication available to us, don't we? And people appreciate those cards and those letters and those things like that. That may be what you are able to do, and only that. If so, there's something for you as a part of the organized program that will be initiated. There's something for everyone, and everyone can be completely comfortable being involved in this program. You can visit without being a part of it. But it certainly helps to know those who are involved and to know what is being done so that we know that the God-given charge to his people is being carried out as effectively as possible, that we are carrying out biblical visitation in the most effective way. As we close, think about the first part of our lesson, God's visitation towards you. God has visited you. God has visited you in the person of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave, he sent, he visited, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
That's the greatest visitation that has ever been or ever shall be accomplished is God's visitation of all of us through his only begotten Son, making possible the complete, absolute forgiveness of our sins, bringing us into covenant relationship with him. And as those who appreciate to the fullest that visitation, then we become God's visitors to others in any way that we can for as long as we can, for as long as we live or until the Lord comes again. And what a privilege it is to be God's visitor, if you will, visiting others as he has visited us. But you can't be God's visitor until you respond to God's visit, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. That's the response to God's visitation that you must make. And if you will, you can have the full assurance that he has forgiven you of every sin, that he's added you to his body, the church, where you can spend the rest of your days going visiting, as it were, for him. You need to come home to your first love, having wandered away, knowing that you once knew God, that you once were active in his kingdom, but you know today that there's sin in your life that needs to be repented of in a public way. If it's private, take care of it privately, of course. But if you need to come home and confess that you have sinned to restore your soul and your influence, to allow your brothers and sisters in Christ to pray with you and for you, then we plead with you to do that now as well as we stand to sing to encourage you.